Welcome to the AAK podcast brought to you by All About Kids, the leading provider of children's therapeutic and educational services in New York. This podcast will dive deep into discussions on children's developmental needs and the stories of parents and other adults who have dealt with developmental disorders. Each conversation on this show is an extension of our mission to create a world where all children have access to intervention, allowing them to live a full and rich life without restriction, where parents have access to the information and training they need to support their child's therapy and special education needs, and where disabilities, therapy, and special education can be openly discussed without stigma. This time, we're doing things a little differently on the All About Kids podcast. Instead of myself as the host, Kathy Grossfeld, the founder of All About Kids, who is also my mom, will be stepping in to host this week's episode. The guest today is Dr. Sima Gerber, a professor of speech-language pathology in the Department of Linguistics and Communication Disorders of Queens College, City University of New York. Dr. Gerber actually was Kathy's teacher and clinical supervisor while Kathy attended the graduate program in speech pathology. Dr. Gerber has over 40 years of experiences specializing in the treatment of children with autism spectrum disorder. She has presented nationally and abroad on the topics of language acquisition and developmental approaches to intervention for children with challenges in language development. Dr. Gerber also has a three-part book series out now titled To the Ones Who Love Me that covers socio-emotional, language, and motor development. They're written totally from the perspective of the baby to give a window into how the baby sees the world at critical developmental points in his or her first year of life. Without further ado, please enjoy this deep dive with host Kathy Grossfeld and Dr. Sima Gerber. Joining me today is Dr. Sima Gerba. I wanted to thank you for joining me in this podcast for All About Kids. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for asking. I wanted to quickly share with the audience that's listening, in case they hear me lapse into calling you Sima, that I'm not being disrespectful in any way, but that you know we've met a long time ago and uh, see each other every so often at conferences, but. Um, a long time ago, I was lucky enough to be accepted into the Queens College Graduate Program for Speech Pathology, and um, you were one of the extraordinary professors there and clinical supervisors that I had, and also Michael Grossfeld, who was to be then my husband and future partner in this business. We both were lucky enough to be there and have you. And... Um, that excellence that we received there was the actually the initial inspiration for our striving for excellence in our company with our services we provide to our parents and working with our providers. So thank you. If you didn't know that, you've impacted a lot of years after we initially met. So thank you for that. Thank you. Beth. So, you know, I wanted to share with everyone in the audience that I initially saw you and reached out to you after I saw you presenting at the Zero to Three uh, Network presentation, um, where you were presenting on foundations of language development in children, and you also presented strategies that um, where you presented case studies that were um, so impacted me to hear that was successful um, for parents to use in their everyday routines with their children. So I know I immediately reached out to you because I wanted to be able to share you and this information with our parents who we consider um, are the best teachers for their children and the providers in All About Kids. We're lucky enough to have our wonderful providers. And I know they're always looking to expand their toolbox and helping children and, you know, directly in the services. And, and also a lot of their work is coaching and supporting families. And I think it would be great, you know, information for them to hear. And so, um, you know, so I thank you for being here today. And, you know, I, I don't know if we maybe kick off, I wanted to refer back to, I know, you know, when I reached out to, we spoke about 
the case study that you um, shared, uh, not only the story, but the video of a mom who was having such difficulty communicating with her child and you um, and, uh, and graduate students, it looked like worked with this family with the strategies that you describe when you talk. And um, it was amazing the difference later on, the communication improvement that happened between, you know, the relationship with that child and the mom. And I was wondering if maybe you could, we could start off that way. You know, you could tell a little bit about that. Sure. Well, I'm excited, first of all, to be reconnecting with Kathy Mm -hmm. after all these years. Um, The Queens College uh, community is always strong and um, everyone uh, amazingly has very fond memories Mm -hmm. of their time in graduate school. And so I'm always happy to see our former graduates and the amazing work that they've done uh, to make us proud. Um, Thank you. The, uh, I think the, one of the great reasons to talk to all of you is because, uh, and the parents, of course, because you, uh, the providers have access to the parents. And that is, uh, has become over the course of my career, a main interest of mine in how to help parents, uh, of children with communication challenges to really be the partners in the therapy. Um, I come from a background in developmental language acquisition, uh, informed by DIR floor time and by mental health constructs. And all of that has led me to really prioritize uh, the work, so to speak, between the parent and the child. And... uh, this is, you know, when I when I started, uh, the parent was in the waiting room mm-hmm. uh, while we were in the room with the child, okay. and eventually the parent moved into the room but was observing, <laughs> and then uh, eventually uh, my work evolved, as did many people, into understanding that the parent and the child would be interacting, and I would be supporting uh, that interaction and helping the parent understand how to, um, you know, tweak, let's say, mm-hmm. their interactions with the child to promote development. That's one thing. The other thing is because my interest has uh, been in children on the autism spectrum, I became very interested in helping people understand that there were many foundational capacities that the child had to develop before um, we focused on talking. Mm-hmm. Now we say, you know, I'm, I'm maybe one of the few speech language therapists who doesn't want to focus on talking mm-hmm. <laughs> with this population, you know. And I, uh, over all these years, you know, I've been a therapist for 50 years, I've seen how um, production language production becomes the goal with so many of these children and in my opinion prematurely uh, because there are many many developmental capacities that must be in place before children can learn a language system Mm -hmm. a symbolic system so these are things like engagement um, which is it's more than keeping the kid happy you know it's a real a kind of relationship that you're looking for between yourself uh, and the child, the parent and the child. And um, all of this comes down to really trying to read where the child is developmentally in the videos that Kathy's talking about. The child was not interacting mm-hmm. with the parent at first, not engaged with the parent. But the parent thought that the way to engage with the child was to ask her questions or to ask her to imitate words or to give her directions. And that was really not in the right ballpark Mm -hmm. for where the child was. So we shifted things as a, you know, would recommend for many um, children 
to be about joining the child where they are. Now, that's like sort of an easy expression to say, what does it really mean, Mm -hmm. you know, joining the child? And in this case, it was very interesting because what the child spent a lot of time doing was tapping, Mm -hmm. tapping objects on the on the uh, table or tapping objects together. And this, of course, was something the parents were very upset about, I think because it signaled to them a symptom of autism. And it took uh, a lot of uh, work and discussion Mm -hmm. to explain to the parents why we actually joined the tapping and made it fun and had a lot of affect around it. Uh, because this was where the child was. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was for regulation purposes the child was doing it, probably so. But you want to start not with uh, saying to the child, you know, put this on the table. Uh, that's irrelevant. But you want to start with something that's meaningful to the child, and the tapping was meaningful. There was some function to that. So that's an example of building engagement, but starting where the child is. Mm -hmm. And um, in our early work, we focus a lot on just joining. You've heard the expression, following the child's lead Mm -hmm. um, and delighting, delighting Mm -hmm. in what the child is doing. So it's much more of a partner than a teacher in the beginning, I would say. When I saw you in the videotape doing that, I it, it made me think of you know uh, in graduate school because I I left there with a lot of tools also of following the child's lead and you want to establish especially the children that are not verbal turn taking skills you know if they don't have turn taking you know I. I I was just amazed to learn there's so many layers to looking and assessing a child's nonverbal ability to see if they have those foundations in order to jump into what the communication skills are. So if they don't have the concept of turn-taking nonverbally, which is the basis, what is conversation? It's back and forth and using a word to get a response and, you know, someone responding to you. Um, I remember you know, learning in, in one of the courses that if a child's not imitating and, you know, can't go back and forth with you non-verbally, you want to try to start there and follow their lead. And if you follow their lead, those will be the imitative skills that will be the, the easiest for them to start turn-taking with, you know? Yeah, and so when right. I saw you doing that, um, yeah, many years, it's been a million years since I've been doing therapy, but We've sat, you know, trying to start there. And um, yeah, it, it was very dramatic to see that child start to imitate back. You know, then the, the, the turn taken began and they understood that, you know, relating and looking for response and anticipating. And um, it was such a difference to know to start there, you know, instead of just adding words, you know. And, you know, even turn-taking sometimes is um, structured Mm -hmm. in a way that would be less uh, what I'm talking about. So with children that are at the very beginning stages, we're creating the turn-taking, right? Mm -hmm. We're not imposing it. So what do I mean by that? So when the child splashes the water, I splash the water, and that. That's our first turn, and likely the child will splash the water again, mm-hmm. right? So there we have turn taking, as opposed to, <clears throat> excuse me. Sometimes I've seen uh, therapists do it a little more structured, like you hand me the ball, uh, your turn, hand me, <laughs> right? Or uh, something that's not coming from the child, mm-hmm. right? So it's the therapist's or the educator's idea of how we'll take turns, Mm -hmm. you know, I'll put it here, then you put it here, you know, it's not that everything comes from the child, Mm -hmm. what the child is already doing. You're much better off starting with what the child is already doing, 
even if it's, as I said, even if it's tapping, yeah. it's tapping on something, mm-hmm. it's something to start with. Um, there's something in DIR where we say the child's idea is better than yours, mm-hmm. you know? So whatever that idea is, now you have to open up mm-hmm. to the possibility that the idea is maybe not so conventional in some ways, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's okay. The child's idea. And, um, and talking about what you just mentioned, Kathy, I mean, absolutely. That hasn't changed over all the years yeah. since <laughs> you went to school. <laughs> um, in other words, the foundations of language are still the foundations, you know, and, uh, building a, uh, free verbal uh, repertoire is very, very important. Um, and, and found again, mm-hmm. foundational. So, uh, you know, sometimes again, we isolate it as a behavior. We say eye contact, mm-hmm. you know, we got to have the job, but it's not, that's not really what it is. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, uh, it's intentionality. In other words, the child wants to look at you mm-hmm. <laughs> because you, you know, splash the water and they like it or because you've tapped and they are tapping mm-hmm. or it's all coming from the child, the agency of the child, right. the idea and intention of the mm-hmm. child. And I think that's what we help this mother um, shift to because she was, as we would expect, she, she thought the best way to teach her child to talk was you know, by asking her questions and having her imitate and waiting for her to say things, you know, right. that's very logical. <laughs> but it turns out there's a whole science of what happens before. I find a lot of our um, parents, when we initially meet them, you know, in evaluations, not all the parents, but a lot of parents, when they we try to get um, information from them, before the evaluators go in or when the evaluators go in, it's kind of just, you know, if their child doesn't have language, they just describe their child just as the absence of not having speech. And, you know, being, if a child's nonverbal, there's so many more layers there to that child with communication skills and the concepts that they understand that make them ready for speech that I think it's a very positive message when we can assess the child and talk about the concepts that are there already that are the basics for learning or they ha- their com- level of communication skills, even though they're nonverbal, so that the child isn't just a nonverbal child, isn't just the absence of being able to speak, you know, and, the, and it's so much more positive. And then you give parents an ability to where to start with a child. There's so many things I can do to facilitate, you know, along the way, even they're working on nonverbal um, strategies, the child is going toward learning language, you know, feeding into, you know, speaking eventually, hopefully. So um, I just think it's, you know, a great way to positive message for parents that there are things that they can do. And, and, and similarly, sometimes when we, our evaluators go in, sometimes parents give a list where they can, my child can count to 10 or they'll, they, they don't know what the words and it's hard for them because they're describing their child and what speech they don't have, but we can give them, you know, other positive without losing sight of the goal of you know, gaining speech, but there's such a positive message and so many things that they can work with their child non-verbally and on pre-linguistic, pre-language skills that will ready them, you know, to speak. And, um, and that's what was, yeah. One of the messages is everybody has to kind of be patient because of course we all want the child Mm -hmm. to be talking and um, that's, you know, that's the ultimate, right? Mm -hmm. But um, patience is important because it, the work itself requires going through stages, yes. you know, of development. This is why um, we'd like people to be very informed about typical language acquisition. Mm-hmm. How is it that typically developing children come to their first word, you know? And it's all that mm-hmm. foundational stuff 
that uh, leads the child there, and we want the child with challenges to have the same experiences. So, for example, with um, being something you're kind of referring to, being intentional, um, in this approach, instead of asking the child to look at you, you know, you wait for the moment where the child is looking at something, you know, mm-hmm. maybe looking over at a, a bubbles, and you take that as their communication. Ah, oh, you want the bubbles? Here they are, you know? Mm-hmm. You don't pause and say, what do you want? Or uh, ask for, you know, more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, by responding to the child as if they have had a communicative intention, this helps develop communicative intention. Mm-hmm. So again, it's very, it's always going from what the child is doing rather than, you know, look at me. Yeah. Right. We see where the child is looking. We respond to that as intentional. And that is how intentionality, one way that intentionality develops. Um, so, you know, in some ways, I guess, uh, you know, some might, some of these things might seem counterintuitive, you know, like, for example, well, if the child is looking at the bubbles and wants the bubbles, why don't we just have the child say bubbles, you know? Um, some of the kids could say bubbles, but unless it's intentional, unless it's coming from them, uh, it, it doesn't have the same developmental power, you know? Right. And also you, you lose, you skip a beat in that. So the child's looking at the bubbles we want to respond immediately. Right. But if the child is looking at the bubbles and you say, what do you want? Say bubbles. Now we've thrown the whole yes. turn taking, <laughs> the whole turn taking piece. We've thrown it out of uh, whack, you know? You lost the opportunity to reinforce communication attempt and turn, draw it out into, you know, trying to imitate vocal sounds and it gets yeah. separated from the whole intent of trying to request. You know, right, right, exactly. Yeah. So these are the uh, way we like to say it. There's a whole science of the foundational capacities for development, developing language comprehension and production, and that uh, there are ways to assess where the child is relative to these um, foundational capacities. I want to give a different example totally because I was talking about engagement mm-hmm. and intentionality. But another foundational capacity is for the child uh, is the, the child's ideas about the world. Mm-hmm. So that is what we talk about. We talk about our ideas. And some of the children seem to have more limited ideas. Or they know a little less about the world or about people. And we see that by watching them play. And for those children who have uh, fewer ideas, play becomes the goal. So first I was talking about how engagement and intentionality become the goal, Mm -hmm. not language production. Mm -hmm. Then we have another group of children where ideas become the goal, not language production. And we work on that through play. So the child who... uh, puts the car on the ramp and lets it come down. But that's the, that's the idea, the main idea, mm-hmm. but doesn't play with the car in any other way. For that child, we have to slowly, slowly choreograph adding ideas. So the child puts the car on the top of the ramp and we catch it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're slowly adding ideas to what the child, again, is already doing. And that's particularly important when children have repetitive play. Different ways to play with items and different concepts. Yeah, because sometimes children are stuck in one way or limited way or play with specific items too. Right. Mm. And and language is based on having a diverse... Uh, breadth and depth of ideas, mm-hmm. you know, uh, even in even in little, typically developing children, they have many, many, many ideas. Mm-hmm. And 
although it sounds uh, kind of obvious, that's what children talk about first is the ideas they have. So if the ideas are limited, then the talk will be limited. Um, can you, I guess, give a few more examples of the type of, you know, ideas or the way different play parents can engage in? Yes. So again, if, for example, with the little girl who was tapping the blocks together, mm-hmm. mommy wanted her to build the blocks up, but that wasn't anywhere <laughs> in the child's uh, schema. You know, it seems like it would be simple, but that isn't what she was doing. Yeah. So with that tapping, we, um, well, I guess you could say we exploited the tapping and we did a lot of music with her. So she would be tapping on the drum and she would be banging cymbals together. And we took that tapping and just milked it for all it was worth. <laughs> there was a cute video. <laughs> yeah, for new new ideas around the tapping. We assumed, again, that the tapping maybe was uh, a regulatory. Maybe she liked the sound mm-hmm. uh, or just the movement. And uh, so what we added was new ways of using that tapping as opposed to let's take the blocks and build a tower. Right. Because that was not within the child's schemas. Yeah. Well, you know, play, you know, it's so easy for parents to incorporate that throughout the day with the children and the, the regular routines, just showing them different ways to use the toys, you know? Yes. As long as it comes from the child's idea. Right. So you you want to always, with the help of the educator or speech language pathologist, you want to get a sense, what does this child mm-hmm. know? What does the child know? Right. And, um, and, and again, the child who's just moving the car back and forth and uh, mommy says, okay, let's go take the car to the store or the therapist. Let's go to the store. Wow way big leap on that right one, you know we're just moving the car back and forth to understand that you could take the car to the store that may not yet be an idea mm-hmm. that the child has. even with language you know when children are first starting to express single words two words if parents or you know providers or you know anyone does the same thing and they cue into the words the child is saying in the hopes of them talking more about it, you have a better chance of them expanding on that language. If you connect your language to what they just said, instead of saying, you know, you pick the topic and and bring them where you want. Yeah. So there's a lot of research on that, you know, how following in, it's sometimes referred to following into the child's talk. And you're right. This is the same thing. Follow into their play, mm-hmm. follow into their intention, follow into their engagement, yeah. what their engagement. This is all follow, follow, yeah. follow. Even adults, if you start talking, if you have someone listening and responding to what you're saying, you like that. It feels good. <laughs> <laughs> right. We will like that. It makes sense. Right. And it makes sense. It has meaning. Right. See, that's the other thing. Someone's listening meaning. and responding and we're looking for what has meaning to the child. Mm-hmm. And and we're not, again, we're not judging it. Like saying, uh, why do you want to just roll the cars over to the end of the room right. and line them up? Why are you doing that? Right. Now we say, wow, that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Roll the cars to the, you know, to the other side of the room and line them up. Let's see what we can do with it. Right. So it's, 360 degrees. Yeah. Might add a room, room while you're doing it. And, you know, and maybe they'll add on to that, you know. Um, Right. Such great, um, you know, strategies for both the providers and the parents. And, you know, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about your project, your book project that you just completed. And um, I have them here. I read them all immediately. It's it's wonderful. It's called To the Ones Who Love Me, Language Development. There's one on Cognitive Development, Social Emotional Development, and Motor Development. And 
I thought they were wonderful. It was a, a simple way for parents to understand what their child is doing is actually all part of language development. It, it shows them, it, it identifies for them in a really simple way with beautiful pictures. Um, you know, it yeah, gives so a simple message. So I was wondering, maybe you can just talk about the project and, you know, the dedication there, which I loved. And So um, actually quite a few years ago, I gave my undergraduate students in language acquisition uh, a little project. And out of that, one of the students uh, actually came up with such a clever idea of making a book. But anyhow, then that student actually became a graduate student at Queens College. Mm -hmm. And three graduate students and I uh, developed this project. The idea was, as Kathy said, you know, that this is a book on social emotional development. Uh, the idea was to help parents um, understand some of the most important developments in the first year of life, all of which ultimately lead to language uh, and communication. Uh, but the way we did it was that we, um, each page is like this, mm -hmm. and it's in the baby's voice. So this says four to six months, mm -hmm. and the baby's saying, I like to smile and babble to myself in the mirror. This helps me practice the sounds of our language. So this is social emotional, mm -hmm. but it's talking about something that happens that contributes to language development. Mm -hmm. uh, Kathy probably heard me say that, you know, I have, of course, published articles and chapters, but in some ways, this is my greatest publication. And, and that's saying a lot because you uh, have numerous <laughs> publications over your whole span of um, being a professor yes, and in the speech true. field and, uh, and presented at numerous conferences and but I yeah. could see how it touched you to do that. I think it because it was done by myself and, and graduate students. Mm -hmm. I mean, by the time we finished, they were not graduate <laughs> students anymore. They were, they were uh, wor working out in the world. Uh, all the pictures were Queens College students when they were babies. So That's such I a great idea. Was, I think that was a big part of it. And then, of course, the crowning piece was that it was dedicated mm -hmm. to uh, Dr. Stark. Dr. Joel Stark, who uh, was my teacher when I went to graduate school at Queens College. And uh, then, of course, my boss, he was the director of the graduate program and the clinic. And then my very, very dearest of dearest friends mm -hmm. uh, who passed away two years ago. So... Uh, he, uh, Kathy knew uh, him yes, for he was, he was a force. Yes. He was a force, not only in Queens College, but in the much wider world of speech language pathology, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, was a visionary um, and just uh, we were all really blessed to know him. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it was the combination of all of those things <laughs> that made me feel emotionally very tied to yes. this. And uh, as Kathy said, I'll just put the plug in. There are four books. Yes, they're on Amazon. They're available they're on, on Amazon. Amazon. And you would search for it with uh, To the Ones Who Love Me. Um, yeah. yeah, so that was, a, that was a project. All these things take much longer than you expect. Yes. And this is self-published, of course. So... Um, and and also the um, the monies uh, there are alumni out there at Queens College. The monies go to the Queens College Clinic uh, to support yes. it. So that's a great um, endeavor. In memory of Dr. Dr. Stark. Yes, he was so compassionate. I could still see him if I closed my eyes, walking into the graduate study room. Come on, you know he was always cheering you on because it was a tough program, and um, and his love for their children and, um, you know, the inspiration of what we were doing um, to work with the children and parents. He was just uh, an amazing cheerleader for us all. And um, yes, and he, I remember he always used to say this because he didn't want us to look at um, anyone in a separate category with a disability 
everyone had abilities. And he actually said, we're all on the same spectrum. We're just at different spots on the spectrum. I remember he used to say that. And it was, uh, it's true. It's absolutely true as you, you know, go on in life. And um, it's, he, he was, he, his, he formed the, your whole outlook on how to approach. Absolutely. That's very, very true. I, I, I myself owe so much to uh, him and his thinking start me off as a graduate student yeah. in a particular direction. Yeah. Absolutely. I also, if you didn't mind, I, when I, I heard you mention during, uh, you know, your prior presentation that you had were able to meet with um, an, a, a child's team. It was an ABA team where they were kind of running into a, a bit of an impasse and you met with them to help them kind of get over what they didn't understand to be a, maybe barriers and how they were going about things, you know, and they welcomed that and found success. And, you know, I had told told you also that, you know, we do serve children on the spectrum. And one of the interventions we do provide is ABA therapy. And, um, you know, and without getting into different, you know, I told you the, the theories and, and the, the camps, you know, I think there's a lot that a lot of the theories overlap, you know, where, you know, the ABA, you know, the end goal of ABA is not to, um, you know, do discrete trials, but then to generalize into a naturalistic setting too, which, you know, it overlaps with a lot of the DIR theory and et cetera. I think there's just a lot of similarities to at some, at some points, the goal is to integrate it into a child's ongoing daily repertoire. Um, but it is, sometimes there are, um, frustrations and, um, I think it is important that ABA who which is often given by special ed teachers who are very trained, and I and I respect the, the BCBAs and the, the ABAs, which we you know we have. They are very learned, but the best teams are the ones that also collaborate with the other disciplines, including speech. And I think it's um, you know the back give and take, back and forth, is when there's the most success on the team. So I was wondering if you could share that experience that for that particular team, you know, what happened and, you know, how the, these constructs helped, you know, them at that point. What happened was that the child started to uh, say things that she didn't understand. Uh, so for example, she was saying, I want, but it wasn't necessarily an I want situation. Mm -hmm. And I, wondered about that. You know, we weren't working yet on language at production with her. And the parent, of course, started to worry about that. Like, um, it, it became a phrase for whatever request she had, mm -hmm. but it didn't necessarily, it didn't have the meaning. So we recognized and the parents recognized that she was using language without the meaning. So, uh, it turned out that, um, some members of the ABA team had been working with her on uh, saying I want, which is, you know, often I think people feel, well, this way we'll kind of know what the child wants, you know. Right. But if it's premature, again, the child may not know the meaning of it. So I met with the team. And what was really, I think, helpful is before, you know, we come in, all indignant <laughs> mm -hmm. with our knowledge is to find out what people are doing and why they're doing it. And so I asked the team what they were working on in language. They said they were working with her on imitating I want and other phrases. And, um, and they recognized themselves that there seemed to be some problems with that. Mm -hmm. So I explained to them something like what I've been talking to you about. Uh, but the, the phrase that has stayed with me was the uh, ABA therapist said, 
I was asking her to imitate because I thought that's how children learn language. Mm -hmm. And that I thought was so significant because um, there's a place where we could really help those who aren't experts in language to learn more Mm -hmm. about how children actually do learn language. And she was quite surprised to find out that it wasn't uh, by imitation of uh, words and sentences, Mm -hmm. that there were other pieces to language development. And I think that that was very important for me because it it wasn't as if the therapist had made this choice, Mm -hmm. you know, this was what she thought Mm -hmm. was the way to go. And yeah. she was uh, trying her best, you know, to help the child learn language. Yeah. So, so I think we have to first we listen and find out uh, what people, why people are doing what they're doing. And then if they're open, as this team absolutely was, to um, other kinds of input on language, of course, you know, that's, that's where we're the experts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were very uh, very open to hearing our suggestions. Mm-hmm. Um, and the child's use of I want uh, fell away, actually, decreased. And um, we started to, we gave them a little core vocabulary of words they could use with her that she would understand um, that were the kinds of words that develop in the earliest phases of language, yes. which I want is not. Yes. Um, so they, you know, they were appreciative of that. And it was a good experience all over. Yeah, no, that's great. Yes. To be careful sometimes not to get into, you know, imitation without function of, you know, connected to communication. And, you know, I, I think that's a great story. And, um, and we do have teams that collaborate. And, um, and I, I just think that was such a, it's just such a positive, um, message and experience that, you know, two disciplines can collaborate and should collaborate and, uh, you know, you get the best out of it. Yeah. I know also that you said you've spent a lot of time in studying the mental health of, you know, infants and, you know, early on. And I wanted to ask you about that, you know, how you've been studying that, you know, what that looks like and, how you think it impacts, you know, what you're doing now and or over the years? Because you you seem to imply that it's been a long time that you've been yes. studying that and incorporating that. So I was just really curious, especially yes. nowadays. You know, you were doing it before it became the buzzword, but now mental health, everyone's ready to hear about it. So I'm just curious if you don't mind, you know, explaining a little. Sure. Well, actually, and I'm I'm trying actually to write a little article about that, you know, because I think it's something SLPs in particular mm-hmm. uh, need to know more about. You know, um, we're going to get breaking so news happens- here. We, we're going to get breaking <laughs> news before you write it. Okay. <laughs> um, what happened to me was that thirty years ago or more. Mm-hmm. Um, as Kathy suggested, this happened a long time, started a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I was working with a boy, John, in, uh, privately in his home. And we had uh, wonderful sessions. He was a delightful boy on the spectrum. Um, and then I was working with him, you know, a couple of years in his home. And then all of a sudden, when I would come to the house, he, he would tell me to go away and uh, he hated me, and oh, it was horrible. It was all this, like, I was like, what? I don't know what happened. How old is he? How old is he when that's... By that point, he was probably around 11, mm. and I had worked with him for several years. Mm. And I was, like, totally mystified. I had no idea what had happened. You know, I, as far as I was concerned, he had just loved me, and now he hated me. Yeah. Um, so I called a friend of mine, a colleague and friend, who is a speech-language pathologist and psychotherapist. Oh, wow. And I said, I have a great referral for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like you to see this boy and his family and see what's what's happening here. Make him love me and again. She, <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> 
and I don't have to feel so uncomfortable yeah. and worried all the time. <laughs> so she said, well, I have a better idea. Why don't I supervise you or mentor you uh, as you work with John and help you understand what's going on? And I thought, oh, no, I just want her to take it <laughs> and figure it out and then come back to me. Because this was, you know, this, I mean, I was well into my career and uh, the idea of, of mentoring at that point, I, I was, just wasn't sure about. It. Anyhow, to make a long story short, that's exactly what we did. And to this day, I still see that uh, oh, supervisor. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Some years after that, we formed a group of speech language pathologists, all very seasoned, experienced. And we've met with her for about 25 years. And the idea of it is to help us understand the emotional life of the child. And I'll tell you what she thought that was all about with John. And also very much to deal with the issues uh, that parents bring to us, mm -hmm. as well as our own feelings uh, about uh, the work and about parents um, you know, the whole gamut of when we are overly involved with parents, when we are upset with parents, mm -hmm. you know, everything that can happen in human interactions, you know. As far as John, what she helped me see was that he was coming to a point where he understood he had a problem. And I represented that. Mm -hmm. I was a symbol of that. He had a typically developing younger brother. And I think he was starting to see that the younger brother uh, was, let's say, doing better mm -hmm. uh, than he was doing. I have an interesting uh, uh, anecdote is that that brother, who's a man, <laughs> came to see me recently with his son, who he thought had autism. Oh, wow. And the brother uh, said... Yes, I was very jealous when you came to see John oh. because he always got to play uh, special games with you and you brought special books and you always went into his room and you were having fun and I was just sitting in the living room. <laughs> so the dynamics of what goes on, yeah. you know, that was very fascinating to me and, and, and not a surprise, I have to say. Uh, but, you know, John was looking at his brother saying, you're so lucky you don't have somebody coming. And the brother was looking at John saying, you have a special friend, you know. So uh, this has become, I would say, really the most important piece of my learning over mm -hmm. the years has been about mental health. And then, of course, in DIR, uh, there's a very large component there's about mental health. And I continue having supervision sessions with one of the, in addition to Elaine, with one of the um, psychologists in that, in, in, who's part of DIR. Wow. And, you know, many questions come up. Many, many questions come up related to what's going on with the child, understanding it in the larger framework, like the example of John, uh, what's going on with parents, um, and when you disagree with parents, the little girl that I showed and that uh, that I talked about, her dad had a very different idea of what the therapy should look like. Mm -hmm. So that was challenging. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, we, we worked through it together uh, and even developed a sense of humor about it. And uh, then, you know, what's, what's happening for you? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've worked with a boy since he's, Four. He's going to be 21 next month. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, consistently uh, seen him uh, at Queens College and um, privately this year because I'm on sabbatical. And, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm very attached to that boy, of course. And things come up because of that attachment to, you know, my mm -hmm. own sadness for him yeah. in terms of what he will and will not be able to do. So lots comes up. Yeah. Do you find that it impacts also your actual work therapy or do you find it's mostly helpful in your interactions, maybe dealing with parents or just reflecting on yourself and your own feelings? 
Yeah. Uh, definitely impacts the therapy. Mm-hmm. Definitely impacts the therapy. Um, with this young man that I'm talking about, I mean, you know, mostly we're talking about young children, but with this young man, uh, I really have to look at the big picture with him mm-hmm. to tweak my goals, uh, which of course are around communication, but um, involve so much, so much more because he he doesn't only bring his communication problems to me, he brings his emotional self to me as well. Mm-hmm. And I have to know the boundaries. He does have a psychotherapist mm-hmm. and um which is great. But so much of what he's communicating is how he feels about himself, for example. He doesn't want to be autistic, you know. I can't say, well, talk about that with Dr. Steve, you know. Yes. <laughs> I have to figure out a way to respond to that, you know. Right. So, yeah. So what would you recommend, you know, not everyone may be um, lucky to start out that way, knowing someone that's a, you know, psychoanalyst or psychologist to kind of as a colleague talk about their cases, but is there some recommendations that you can make for the field, you know, in pursuing or having a heightened awareness of the mental health, you know, as they're going on in the their career? Well, I'm afraid my recommendation will not be uh, popular <laughs> because it is actually, uh, I can only go with my own experience. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that helped me, the thing that became vital mm-hmm. to my work was having supervision with a uh, psychotherapist. Yes. So, um, you know, I think people could develop little groups mm-hmm. so that it you know, it's not so expensive and meet like we, we do yes. we still do yeah. with the psychotherapist and we present cases and questions and, uh, you know, the best learning help happens as everyone knows around their own, uh, the own mm-hmm. children and families that they're working with. Cause that's where the affect is. Yes. You know? Yes. Um, so you bring your, questions about the kids you're working with Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be expensive Mm -hmm. as i said because if you have a group of four or five people it becomes actually very manageable once a month something like that and it will be i would say it would change your work in enormously Mm -hmm. important ways so that's what i guess yes no that it sounds great you know in our fields and, you know, providing the services that we do in early intervention and preschool, the majority of them are in the home community and schools. So everyone's kind of out there on their own. Of course, we connect from the, uh, you know, from all about kids with uh, availability of clinical supervision or, you know, talking about the program and the regulations. But, you know, I, I I do see there's a welcome when there is opportunities to meet together as as peers to discuss things. It's certainly not psychoanalysis, but there is um, a pull to want to want to connect. And um, you know, I, I I think that's a lot. There's a lot to be learned from that being in a group too. I hadn't thought about this, Kathy, but, uh, and I don't want to put you on the spot, yeah. but you could be a leading <laughs> oh, <no>. force <laughs> in this, in creating this kind of opportunity for people who are part of your agency, mm-hmm. you know, um, because it is hard to figure out how would, how would it happen? Mm-hmm. People have to kind of create it on their own, yes. you know? Yes. Um, and, and a lot of people feel like, they had their supervision, you know, they dealt with that. Yeah. But uh, I, I cannot overestimate how meaningful and helpful and uh, how much deeper your work could be mm-hmm. if you have that kind of, uh, always knowing your boundaries, mm-hmm. always knowing. Yes. Them. Never want anybody to think they became a psychologist. But there's things like uh, empathic responses mm-hmm. are, for an example, you know, very often speech and language people want to answer with information, yes. which I understand, and that's what parents would like. 
but very often the best response is an empathic response mm-hmm. rather than information. And uh, there's a lot to learn about yeah. that, how to do that and the value of that. So. You know, it's interesting that you say that, and I might have mentioned this to you in our past talks, but, you know, we're we're asked as providers going into the the homes and working with parents or caregivers, you know, to make sure you leave some strategies and explain, you know, how the parents can carry through when you're not there, because really we're only there a short time, whatever the service is. Um, And I had never really thought about it until I was in a situation years ago where I had to go for physical therapy myself. And the physical therapist before I left would say, you know what, these would be good exercises for you to do before you come the next time. And I remember one time leaving and, you know, life, I don't know what it was, but it gets really hectic. And I realized, oh my gosh, today is my next session. I haven't done any of those exercises. And I was actually like sweating and hating to go there and tell them I didn't do my exercises. And, you know, it was in that moment, although, you know, I, I had thought, you know, we, we have discussions with our providers to, you know, be careful in, you know, not criticizing a parent that doesn't tell you that they've done something, but the stress of that, you know, the stress of thinking I need to get this done, or this was a, you know, um, an assignment kind of thing. And, you know, I, I want our providers to be sensitive to the fact not to be judgmental. And also, you know, maybe we don't make it seem as much of an assignment ex- other than, you know, suggestions to help and support, you know, during the time. And um, and then if a parent says, you know, I didn't get a chance to do it, it's great. It's fine. You know, we'll go from here. We'll try it again. Maybe you'll, you know, and, um, you know, cause not to be judgmental on if a parent doesn't get around to doing it. And especially in this world where we've gone the past two years with parents having to work and school their own children and keep their families healthy, you know, um, and it, it's just been, uh, such a, difficult time for everyone that we can't even go there and, and make anyone feel guilty. You know, I'm, I'm appreciative of the families, you know, that are with us, you know, whether it's through telehealth or in person, everyone has to go at their pace and our providers, you know, are doing a great job to navigate through this time too. And we just all have to be, like you said, empathetic non-judgmental and navigate our own way, you know, coming through even in this time or regular times. And, um, you know. And, you know, what? one last thing on that, Kathy, is that the best thing you can do, I think, for the parent is help them see how they can have a joyful interaction with their child. Mm joyful interaction and if the working on this or working on that is stressful or is uh, even you know work <laughs> for the parent or the child mm-hmm. that, that is not as helpful as right. helping parents see that the best thing they can do is uh have a joyful playful interaction with their child where their child feels seen and read and uh, and delighted in just as they are and i know that sounds like well how do you move ahead that way but uh you just have to trust me yes <laughs> that 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 the science of development tells us that that is the way uh to help children move ahead and in fact in this book uh where do we have that the most important thing, let's see. The whole feeling about the books are joyful, you know, between the pictures and the the voice of the child explaining what they're doing. Um, 
Yes, and this is the this is the bottom line on, on the book. Mm-hmm. Everything babies or children do will add to their learning, but there's no imp- more important experience for children's development than their relationship with you, the parent, and the time you spend playing together. Yes. So that that is a beautiful summary. A yes, I, I love ah. it. And uh, and on that joyful note and. You've been a joy to have. Thank you so much for giving us the time. And I can't wait to share you and uh, with our providers and families. So thank you so much. And maybe we'll talk again about maybe some more ideas. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the AAK podcast. To keep up with all things AAK, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at at AAKCares. For any questions or comments about the podcast, you can reach out to me through my email, which is linked in the podcast description. We appreciate you tuning in. Until next time.